Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write, appealing you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want you to, to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all the day that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are blemishes on your love feasts as they feast with you without fear, looking after themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up foam of their own shame, wandering stars, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud mouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear hating even the garments stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling 
and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. I'd like to call Ben James forward to the stage. Again, I'm Josh Sainer, one of the elders uh, at GCF, and this morning we are pausing in our series on the Gospel of John due to illness. Unfortunately, Pastor Dave Farley got sick and is unable to be with us, and it was kind of a last-minute scramble to get someone to preach. And the Apostle Paul told Timothy, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. And our brother Ben is ready out of season. So we're thankful. (laughs) So quickly, just to introduce Ben, Ben James. He's a member of GCF and attends our Valley Campus. Ben is married to his wife, Stephanie, and I hear uh, tomorrow is your 18-year anniversary. So congratulations. They have four beautiful, wonderful children. Uh, You are a firefighter in the Valley. Is that correct? Well, good. Well, we're excited to hear from Ben, so let's give him a warm welcome. Thank you. Good morning. The Valley Campus sends their greetings. We're relatively new there, about 18 months, and nonstop people say it's a bittersweet thing to have multiple campuses. They love the growth, they love the, the model, and they miss the people. So they send their greetings. And we can enjoy now the beginning of 2022, where we will all write the date wrong for the next month. Okay, well, a couple of things before we get started here. Some preliminary remarks. We're going to preach the whole book of Jude this morning. We're going to work through it entirely. Why would we do that? Well, first, because it is scripture. But there's a particular value to grabbing an entire book in one sitting. You could devote 30 sermons to the book of Jude. That's not an exaggeration. But we're not going to this morning because when you take it all in one large swath, you're going to notice things, things that you would lose sight of if you were to go verse by verse really, really slowly. So we're going to take it all as one book. That also means, though, buckle up, right? We have to keep moving. Now, Jude is a famous book for all the rabbit trails. There are a multitude of minutiae and odd questions and interesting quotes we will not be dealing with those. Like, so in the words of the princess bride, get used to disappointment if you think I'm going to deal with all those. Okay? That's not going to happen. So we're going to go ahead and start. I'm going to pray one more time, and then we'll dive into the text. So would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come now to your word. The word that binds up and heals. The word that is a hammer and a fire, the word that is a sword and cuts to the joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of our heart. Father, your word is powerful. Would you speak to us now through it? Would the book of Jude be dear and clear to us? And Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Christ's name, amen. Please open back up to the book of Jude if you've closed it. But as we start, I'd like to start with a question. And I want to know, have you ever been in a fight? 
I mean like a legit real fight. We're not talking a Facebook kerfuffle, but an actual fight. Have you ever been in a fight or been in a situation that you thought, boy, I don't know, like this could come to blows. And I wanna know, what is that line between I'm not gonna fight and now it's time to fight? Where, where is that line? What, what changes, what's that tipping point? My mother was part of a large family, six kids, and they moved when she was young from Seattle down to New Mexico. And they wound up in a really rough school, which means my uncle always told me great stories. And one of my favorites was about a new kid at the school. So school was famous for being brutal to the new guys in school. This is in high school, guy shows up, this is his first day in school, he's about 6'4", 230, 240 pounds, all muscle, not the kind of guy you screw around with. So guys gang up. They meet him in the hallway day one, knock all of his books out of his hands, kick him all over the hall. Not a word. Bends over, picks up his books, goes to class. All week long tormented. If he goes to sit in a chair, they kick it out of the way. If he's walking down the hall, they kick something into his way. It's just a nasty week. It's Friday. He's getting off the bus at his house, and he gets jumped by four guys. One of them has a two-by-four. They jump him, and he breaks the first guy's jaw, knocks the second guy out, breaks the third guy's arm, fourth guy runs off. <laughs> Turns out his dad was the Golden Gloves champ of the Air Force and had taught his son to fight. But his dad had a really clear rule. If you ever fight when you don't need to, you'll answer to me. But if it comes to that moment, you'll be ready. That's the moment that we're talking about in the book of Jude. That's the heartbeat, the center line, the thing that we want to focus. What is that line from when you don't have to fight to when now something has changed and we must fight? Now, when you open the book of Jude, you can be forgiven for overlooking the first couple of verses. They sound regular. Jude, a servant of, Christ, of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Put the brakes on right there for just a second. That opening sentence should blow your mind just a little bit. This is Jude the half-brother of Jesus, grew up with Jesus. And how does he refer to himself? His opening line is not, Jude, the guy who grew up with Jesus and saw him when he was a kid and now is a servant of him. He introduces himself with Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, a servant of my brother. And then what else does he want you to know? I'm a brother of James a fellow member of the church. It's a shockingly humble beginning. Imagine what must have happened to him to make him like this. The gospel, the good news about who Jesus is, is near and dear to Jude's heart. And because of that, Jude isn't playing around. Jude is desperately serious about the gospel. Jude starts off his letter. Let's look at verse 3. He tells you why he's trying to write, or what was trying to go on here. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So what is Jude saying? Jude is saying, I had something I wanted to write about. I was going to talk about our common salvation, and something happened. I can't do what I was going to do. I must exhort you. 
I must write to you and deal with this topic. He skips a normal intro. Most of the letters in the New Testament, you're going to get a moment of thanksgiving, a prayer on the behalf of who he's writing to. None of that happens. We actually don't know exactly who this is directed to. All that skipped. Jude starts off, I wanted to write about something else. This is what I have to write about. So what's going on? Jude says, I'm calling you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. There's an urgency here. Now, this word, this phrase, we're called to contend. It's a word from the gym. It's a word from the battlefield. It's a word that you just dipped in sweat. It's, it's where we get our word agony or agonistical, to strive, to struggle, to fight, to battle. That's what he means when he says, contend for the faith. So what's going on? What has happened? I want to know, why did you decide I have to change my letter? A letter is not an easy thing to send back then. You have to choose wisely. And he says, it's so important. I can't talk to you about the thing I wanted to talk to you about. I must talk to you about this. Jude, what happened? And so Jude sets off to explain to us. First thing he's going to tell us, why we must fight. Why we must contend for the faith. Verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people, who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Paul says, the church has been infiltrated. Traitors in your midst. I can't talk about what I wanted to because they're here now. Stop. Notice that this is not an unexpected thing, or shouldn't be. This is not a new tactic. If you're familiar with the New Testament, you may remember back to the book of Acts, when Paul is seeing the Ephesian elders for the last time. And he says, you'll never see my face again. And he gives them a warning from Acts 20. Listen to this. I know, this is Paul speaking, that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Paul says, people will arise from within the church and things will go sideways. And Jude is saying, it's happening here. And, they, and he gives two descriptions, right? Two things he wants you to know. They pervert the grace of God into sensuality, and they deny our only master and Lord. Those are the two key criteria. They take grace, and they run it into license. And they deny Jesus. And very specifically, they deny him as master and Lord. The gospel is at stake here. This is the point when the line has been crossed. Jude sees this going on, and he knows that the gospel itself hangs in the balance, and so he says, fight. You must contend for the faith. But here's the thing. If that's the why, that's what's happened, then the next question pops up. Who are they? Who am I supposed to contend with? And Jude is going to devote the core of the book to answering that question. Verses 5 through 16 are devoted to that. If you're in the military and you get recruited by the CIA, they send you to a school to unlearn all your bad habits. 
or good habits, depending on how you're looking at it. You have to unlearn habits like the way you cut your hair, the way you stand extra straight and tall, the way that you walk in a group. A group of soldiers walking on the sidewalk on a day off will accidentally fall into cadence. It's who they are. It's what they've been trained to do. So the CIA trains them to break those habits. They have preset habits and actions that identify them. And Jude wants you to know, so do these guys. These guys, you're going to actually know them by their actions, by their habits. I think that Jude has people in mind when he writes this letter. I think he's observed this firsthand. And he gives no names. Why is that? Isn't that weird? Right? Jude's writing, other authors in the New Testament name names. Jude doesn't. And I think that's because Jude is showing us in this room a particular kindness. Because he knows that the people that crept into the first century church and the second century church and the third century church show up in the 21st century church. And so he says, I'll spare you the names. I'll tell you what they do. I'll tell you how to recognize them. What are their habits and their actions? Jude is loving us with this. And so his basic opening description is three sets of three. Three sets of three. Three events, three sins these people commit, and three villains that they're like. Three events, three sins they commit, and three villains that they are like. The three events. These three events orient you both to the story of Israel and to the judgment of that moment. So he points back to the Exodus. This is in verse 5. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. That's number one, Egypt. Destroyed those who did not believe. People escaped Egypt at the Passover into the wilderness and perished in the wilderness. Why? Unbelief. Jude points to them first and he goes, remember that? That's like this. And then number two, verse six, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. That's his next one. Loads of debate over what he's referencing here. Could be Genesis six. I tend to think it's Genesis six. But it's unclear. What is clear is it's an authority battle again. They left their proper realm of authority and rebelliously went and did their own thing. And also then he points to Sodom. This is the Sodom of Sodom and Gomorrah. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Three events, all of them judged. And he wants you to know these people you want context? You want to orient yourself? It's like that. But he's going to keep filling this out for us. There are three specific sins that are related to those events that the false teachers, these false believers, now perform and do. It's their habits and their actions. And what are they? They defile the flesh, they reject authority, and they blaspheme the glorious ones. It's this mixture of full-on defiling of the flesh, which is absolutely picking up sexual corruption. Happens in Sodom and Gomorrah. Probably plays a role in what's going on with the angels. That idea is there, wrapped in 
rebellion against God's authority, a twisted rejection of who he is and his role as ruler and king and God. All brought together with a heart of unbelief. So he's brought these all together. And then he says, or shows us, three villains that these people are like. Now, if you were going to pick three people from the Old Testament that you didn't want to be compared to, these guys have to be in your top five. And it's Cain and Balaam and Korah. Cain, whose envy and jealousy and pride leads to the first murder. And Balaam, Balaam, a fascinating story. A prophet paid money to go and curse God's people, and every time he opens his mouth, what happens? A blessing comes out. And so what does he do? He's a greedy man. He still wants his money. He teaches the kings around Israel how to corrupt Israel through evil sexual practices. Lure them away with idolatry. And lastly, it's Korah. And what is Korah? Korah is the one that rebelled against Moses. Stands up and says, Moses, you're not that special. We're all holy. We're all good here. We claim authority too. And what happens? He's destroyed in the midst of all Israel with everyone watching, he and all his family. Notice those themes. Sexual perversion. Rebellion against authority. Destruction. Greed. Selfishness. And it's all of these images packed together that Jude wants you to see. And he says, pay attention. These ones are like that. Verse 8, yet in like manner, these people also. This potent mixture of rebellion, sex, greed, judgment, evil, lust, all of it is there. Now here's the question. Jude writes to the church. He wants to talk to them about this. And in the back of my head is the question, okay, can we live and let live? Do we really have to fight about this? Can I just focus on the gospel? Can I just focus on good preaching and doing me and my household well, and they'll do their thing and they'll fade away? And I feel like if you were to ask Jude that question, he would grab you by the ear and he would drag you all the way back to verse 3. And he would say, I wanted to write about something else, and I can't. His reason is that these people are not just wrecking themselves. That's bad enough. They're wrecking the church. They're dragging people off from the gospel. They're denying the faith once delivered by their lives, by their teaching, by their corruptions. And so what has to happen? You have to fight. You must absolutely contend. And so he wants to give us now five analogies, five more ways to think about these false brethren. And what are those five ways? Hidden reefs, waterless clouds, fruitless trees, wild waves, and wandering stars. At first glance, you're like, I'm not sure that's terribly helpful. But as you stop, and as you think through them carefully, you're going to notice two things are true of all of them. All of those are deceitful and destructive. They appear one way, and they're not, and they destroy those who trust in them. So hidden reefs. Depending on what ESV version you're reading, what year it was released, your text may say blemishes. The word could be rendered either way, blemishes at your love feast or hidden reefs at your love feast. Hidden reefs is probably the better translation, but it's a struggle because the point that it's getting at is there's something under the surface, dangerous, that will wreck you, and it's showing up at your love feasts. Now, what is a love feast? Simple summary, a love feast. If you take communion and a church potluck and they have a baby, you get a love feast, right? 
Back in the first century, you didn't separate communion and the church eating together. You would have a communal meal of which communion was a part. And those were oftentimes referred to as the church's love feast. And so, he says, at your love feast, these guys are present. And they're hidden reefs, they're blemishes, they're spoils on this moment. And they're shepherds who only feed themselves. That's a critical line. With that label, you probably move from thinking that these are just members of the congregation to at least some of them being leaders. That label shepherd, either all through the Old Testament and into the New, is a label for the one who leads the people of God. So when he says, there's shepherds who feed themselves, he's saying, selfish leaders who are not looking out for you look like they are and are not. But what's the next image he gives us? Waterless clouds driven along by the wind. These are clouds that promise rain and actually don't deliver it, which in the Middle East is probably a pretty big deal. When you don't have much rain, when the clouds show up on the horizon, you're fairly hopeful. These clouds show up brought along by the winds and nothing. And just as the clouds are driven by wind, these people are driven by every wind of their own desire. They follow their flesh into sensuality. Whatever their lust is, they pursue. But then their next fruitless trees, twice dead. They're dead in the sense that they bear no fruit, a useless tree, supposed to have fruit on it, and doesn't. Christ curses one as an image back in the Gospels. But not only that, it's an uprooted tree. It's doubly dead. And they're like that. They're fruitless, and they're uprooted. They're also wild waves. Think here of this, of like a rogue wave. Most waves in the ocean, one direction, ships sail across them, and every so often, a wave out of nowhere will come from the opposite direction. And they can absolutely wreck a ship. They're unexpected. And these, these people in the church are like that. And it says that they cast up the foam of their own shame. No embarrassment. Their own shame froths up from who they are. Twisted, defiled, broken, corrupt. And lastly, they're wandering stars. That is, these are stars that if you were to base your navigation on them, they would lead you astray. They're not a fixed reference point. They wander through the heavens, unattached to anything, claiming their own authority. And all of this leads up to his final, his final point in verse 14. If you were going to summarize these people, they are under God's condemnation, and one word summarizes them. They're ungodly. Look at it in verse 14. It was also about these that Enoch, seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all, and pay attention to the word ungodly here, to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. He dropped this earlier in verse 4. Certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people. And now he's underlined it for you four times in a row. Who are these people? Ungodly. Doesn't matter that they show up in the church. Doesn't matter that they're a leader in the church. This is who they are. Let's stop here for just a second. This is the, the turning point in the book. He's going to go from focusing on and looking at who the opponents are, what they're doing, how they conduct themselves, to talking to the church directly. But before we get there, 
I want to stop and think. Are these battles, are these descriptions present in the church today? If you were to ask the question of, do we find church leaders who are greedy for their own gain in the church today? I think the answer is yeah. There's something called the prosperity gospel that's pretty much just that. Or go ahead and and layer on top of that, is sex a problem in the church today? Top to bottom, inside and out, all over the place. Whether that's the sexual abuse scandals, whether that's adultery behind closed doors, pastors disqualified by what they've done, or maybe just raw licentiousness. That's the argument of these guys, right? Jesus forgives, go and do as you please. Does that land in in the church today? I I think it does. In fact, I think that every single category and sin described in this book, you can still find around today. Rebellion against authority, rejection of God, twisted sin, greed, pride, envy, jealousy, all of it present in the church today. But let's make it a tiny bit more personal. Has Jude held a mirror up to you? Have you recognized yourself in his letter? That is, do you claim Christ with your mouth and live however you want? That's a real question. You should stop for a minute and ponder that. You should always ask, like like when you're reading a story, who's the good guy, who's the bad guy? If you look at your own life, do not assume you are the hero. Are you the villain? Are you the one who pretends to love Jesus, but actually just likes adulation? Actually just wants money? Actually is just looking out for contacts? Is is that true of you? Jesus describes the church as his bride. Do you think that you can mess with his bride and not wind up with the wrath of the king? Do you think he's plain? He is most definitely not. It is entirely possible that there's someone sitting in this room here this morning, just based on numbers alone, who likes the idea of being thought of as a Christian but really hates the idea of obeying Jesus as a Christian. You are in peril. This is a dangerous moment for you. What will you do? What will you do this morning? Are you just going to Go home and wash this off. Just try to pretend like you didn't read the book of Jude. You didn't hear it read to you. Do you you think that you can continue to pretend? You have one option in front of you. Only one good choice. And that's repentance. The king whose bride you're messing with, the one whose redemption you're mocking, literally still holds out his hand with pardon. He knows how to bring sinners to himself. And so now I speak to everyone in this room. If this is you, this was me a long time ago. If this is you, repent. He loves to forgive. Come to Christ. Taste of his goodness and of his forgiveness. Let's ask one broader question now. Is Grace Christian Fellowship at risk of what Jude warns about? Statistically, the answer has to be yes. Just the sheer amount of people spread out between three campuses means there's a really good chance that somebody is already on this path. 
somebody wants to walk away, is headed down this angle. Will you contend for the faith? Are you willing to suffer and sacrifice for it? What, what if it costs you a friendship? What if it costs you a falling out with a close group of friends? Is, is that worth it? Jude would argue, top to bottom, inside and out, forever and ever, yes. No doubt about it. It absolutely is worth it. But let's look at it from another angle for GCF. Maybe you're sitting here this morning, and you can offer a quick prayer of thanks to God. Because you happen to be members of a church where the elders have not only promised the congregation, but covenanted with them that they will pursue you in your sin. Church discipline is a grace. It is a healthy thing. They have promised, if we see you heading down that road, we're coming for you. Let that sink in. Feel the love and the threat of that. It is both, and it is mixed. We fight for what we value. Do you value the gospel enough to fight for it? Would you contend for the faith? So now, let's move to the final section here. We know that it's the time to fight. The line has been crossed. We know why we're supposed to fight and who we're supposed to fight. One last thing. How? How do you contend? What does fighting look like? And Jude really simply just says, the first thing, you have to have proper expectations. It's the second time in the letter that he tells you, remember. He sets out in verse 5, hey, I want to remind you of these things now. In verse 17, you must remember. And what are you supposed to remember? Remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers, following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. This expectation should be part of the way that we view the world. If I go into math class and I get math problems, I'm not shocked. I expect it. That's what happens in math class. And what is he saying here? Based on the apostle's warning, when you come into church, expect this to be a battle. Expect this fight. Expect this moment. And so how will you handle it? What, what does it look like to respond appropriately? And his answer is really straightforward. It's very, very personal, actually. First, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. Sinking your roots deep into the gospel. Not just telling other people about it, but tasting it for yourself. If these false teachers are twice dead trees, bearing no fruit and uprooted, you are to be the polar opposite of that. With roots deep into Christ and who he is, bearing fruit, love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, gentleness, all of it to the other members of the body. And then from there, out to the world. Sink your roots deep into the gospel. And to be praying in the Holy Spirit. Build yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. This is the opposite of their speech. The false shepherds, these false brethren, they blaspheme, they speak pridefully, they declare what they don't know. And what does he say to you? What should your speech look like? It should look like prayer, first and foremost praying in the Holy Spirit. They don't have the Spirit. They claim dreams. They claim visions. They don't have the Spirit. What do you have? The Spirit. And you ought to be praying. And then he says the core. Keep 
yourselves in the love of God. What does that mean? Like the first time I heard that read, I was mildly uncomfortable with it. Are you saying, Jude, that I could be a Christian and outside of the love of God? I feel like that's not what I've heard from the rest of Scripture. Well, I would say that there are two senses that you must take this word. You must take this phrase. First, in the larger sense, absolutely not. No Christian ever, a true believer, will ever be outside of the love of God, adopted into his family, the blood of Christ shed on your behalf, never outside of the reach of his love. In his love. But... There is a temporal dimension. There's a practical, relational dimension. And rather than trying to argue my way to it, I'd rather just read you from John 15. This is Christ speaking. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. There is a practical sense in which obedience is to remain in God's love. So take a step back and think of Jude's scope here again. He has said, people are in the church, this is a huge danger, and he gives you a prescription. And what is his prescription? Build yourselves up in the faith, pray in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. This is the exact opposite of living however you want to. This is the exact opposite of trying to please yourself. This is glorious submission to Christ. So let's stop just for a second here. I'll address the fathers in the room. Are you leading your families in building your family up in the most holy faith? Do you set the tone and the example in this? Or let's see if I can put a finer point on it. If I was to come to your family, your wife and your kids, and ask them, would they know more about your favorite sport, your favorite team, your favorite game, your favorite book, your favorite movie, than they do about Christ? What would the answer be? Because you speak about what you love. And it turns out, according to Jude, you also fight for it. We fight for what we love. And lastly, verse 21, waiting for the mercy of God. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Mercy top to bottom, inside and out. It is our hope and our claim, the mercy of God because of the work of Christ. An old Puritan lay dying on his bed, surrounded by his friends, and he is on death's door, and his friends are encouraging him. Oh, you go to your reward. You're going to go see him. And he stops him and says, no, I go to receive mercy. When I get there, that's my hope. That I receive mercy not because I've earned it, I have no way to earn it, but because of the utter goodness and greatness of Christ. But Jude also has his eye on one other group in the church. You can call those casualties. What do you do for the people who are being led astray? How will you interact with them? This is verses 21 through 23. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. You don't get to just write off the people that are being led astray. That would be the easier option. 
you're dead to me, you're following him, get out of my sight. That's not at all what Jude's option is here. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy mixed with fear. That's such a great image. Mercy mixed with fear. A recognition of you reaching out and realizing that to reach out brings its own peril. You who are caught in a trespass, repent, and those who restore him, watch out that you don't fall too. And the structure of this rescue, the structure of dealing with the casualties that are caused by this, is really important. You build yourselves up in the faith first. You pray first. You keep yourselves in the love of God first. In the same way that when you're on an airplane and they tell you, when the oxygen masks drop, you do you first, and then you help your neighbor. Same thing here. You do not reach out until your roots are deep here in the gospel. But I want to end with what our actual hope is. What is our hope in this fight? Do you feel equal to this task? I do not. Do you really think you can make wise choices, decisions, read the lay of the land correctly, recognize everybody perfectly? I don't think I can. So what will be our hope? And Jude, man, this guy knows how to end a letter. Because the doxology at the end of this letter is not his yours truly, Jude. This is the triumphant climax to the entire letter, is this last section. He starts off verse 1 by telling you what? To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. You are kept for him. His treasure belonging to him, kept for him. Then what does he say later on? Verse 17, sorry, verse 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God. And now, come to the doxology. Now to him who is able to keep you. That is your hope. That will be your rest, your strength, and your joy. And you should recognize how utterly central Christ is to this book. Let me attempt to summarize it. It's his gospel that men are twisting. It's his bride that's being attacked. It's his authority that's been rejected. It's his mercy that you and I are waiting for. It's his judgment that we ought to fear. It's his people being led astray, his grace that people are perverting, and his power that can keep us safe. Top to bottom, inside and out, all of it centers on him. And so how will he end? I'm just, I'm just going to end the sermon reading the doxology. Let it sink into your bones. This is rich food. Jude writing now in verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty, dominion and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Will you pray with me?